Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Good morning. It's Tuesday, 19th of December. Coming up on the Michael Reed Show this morning, going to investigate the possibility that locals may have been involved in an arson attack in a hotel set to house 70 people seeking international protection in Galway. Could we be nearing agreement on a restoration of power sharing in the north? Not before Christmas, according to the DUP. The Catholic Church make concessions on blessing same-sex marriages. The central bank gives its assessment on the health of the Irish economy. And the United Nations Security Council is set to vote on a ceasefire in the conflict between Israel and Hamas. The Taoiseach Leo Varadkar has said the government must improve communication around migration and the asylum system in Ireland. Mr Varadkar's comments come after a fire at a Galway hotel at the weekend that was due to house asylum seekers. The Ross Lake House Hotel in Roscahill had not been in use for a number of years. Mr Varadkar said that he was deeply concerned about misinformation in Ireland. Well, joining us this morning is John Lannan, his CEO of Durris, an independent organisation working to promote and protect the rights of people from a migrant background in Ireland. John, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Can I ask you first perhaps to comment on what was said by two Fianna Fáil councillors yesterday, Seamus Walsh and Noel Thomas. They more or less said, the inn is full, we have no more room, it's time to close the door. Well, first of all, it's quite that the attack in the hotel happened. It's not the first time that we've seen this sort of thing happening, concerns being expressed by groups of people blocking a road, gathering outside a building or escalating to arson and violence. And I'd have to say that politicians need to be more responsible in what they say. First of all, it's quite surprising that the Fianna Fáil councillors seem to be unaware of our obligations to um, afford the right to anybody to seek asylum or international protection here. But then you know, continuing to um, to stoke the fear mongering and the misinformation that's been spread amongst communities linking international protection applicants and indeed in the case of one of the councillors, migrants in general with criminality is absolutely uncalled for and I would hope that the leader of Fianna Fáil and Tánaiste, to Michal Martin will take this um, very seriously and take appropriate action. Okay, as we know that Fianna Fáil are going to be investigating this under the terms of the rules around uh, speech such as was um, uh, disseminated yesterday by both individuals. However, we live in, in a democratic society where people are allowed 
to express concerns, opinions, as long as they do not breach what's considered to be incitement to hatred and violence. So perhaps they are merely just amplifying what they are hearing from so-called Middle Ireland around this, that there is a genuine concern that we find people seeking international protection in Ireland living in the streets intense. That's wholly unacceptable. The reality is we don't have accommodation for people and this is the consequence of it and people quite rightly will voice their concerns around that. Well it is as you say wholly unacceptable that people who come here seeking sanctuary and protection are left on the streets homeless and it's particularly disappointing then when we see buildings that are available to provide them with accommodation being burned to the ground. Um, and even indeed um, centres being blocked as well and we've we've had cases or we still have cases of this right across the country. I don't believe that the protesters in, in most of these cases are expressing the views of the majority of people because if we look at what happened across Ireland whether it's in response to people from Ukraine or from other parts of the world we have generally been open and welcoming. However there's a small element of people from the far right who are spreading fear, misinformation. They are, as I said, linking international protection and applicants with which is absolutely uncalled for. There is absolutely no justification or basis for that. And when we have local politicians contributing to that, it makes things worse. Local communities are absolutely right to demand better services. You know, we have villages, we have towns that have been um, cut by um, austerity over the decades. We've shortages of um, resource teachers in schools. We've lack of GP cover. These are things that local politicians need to be advocating for and need to be working towards. But we need to provide services for everybody. The shortage of these services isn't down to the fact that people come here seeking protection. But you do accept nonetheless that there is a genuine fear amongst moderate people who want to welcome individuals to this country, who have empathy for them. But it's a case of not in my back garden. It's just that we don't have the facilities to be able to deal with an influx of whether it be 70, 40 or 100 people into small communities. That's that's reasonable to, to, to vocalise, isn't it? Well, I mean, we we have unused buildings in communities around the country. We have um, calls in, in many situations for them to be brought back into use as hotels or into use as nursing homes or whatever is required by, by the communities. Those services, those resources do need to be provided. But at the same time, we have international obligations when it comes to providing for international protection applicants. And bear in mind that most asylum seekers want to contribute as well. After six months in the country, they have the right to work. They will be earning money. They too will be contributing to the local economy. We have examples the length and breadth of the country where asylum seekers have been active parts of tidy towns initiatives and committees. We've had examples of other forms of volunteerism in places where people work. So I think we need to look here at the benefits and also look at how we make things work rather than putting impediments in place and rather than saying no to mm-hmm. certain people arriving in the community while we should be advocating for better services. And uh, better I, I don't think own. for a moment any moderate individual would argue with that in terms of the benefits of bringing people from other countries into this country because we can see them filling gaps when it comes to employment. All you have to do is look at the services industry. 
industry. It's predominantly dominated by people from other countries and they are filling that gap for us. However, I I just need to perhaps focus on the government here. Are they trying to foist the, I suppose, responsibility of where we are at in terms of the perception of people seeking international protection here or Ukrainian refugees onto the public when they themselves should have sorted this out. It's their problem. They are the architects of their own misfortune, as it were, around this. Well, government certainly needs to be doing more on this. Um, we have been calling for the last year and a half for a medium to long term plan for the accommodation of people, not just from um, wars and persecution around the world, but particularly for Ukraine. The Department of Children has done extremely well in terms of finding temporary or emergency accommodation for people as they arrive. But that's unsustainable. That's not um, adequate. It's certainly not conducive to um, the types of lives and the development of, of children. Even them stuck in emergency situations or hotel rooms is, is not appropriate. We do have a housing shortage here in Ireland as well. We have 13,000 Irish people who are homeless. So there is a critical need for the Department of Housing to take this seriously, to look at putting measures in place to ensure that we have adequate accommodation for everybody. But when you look back over the last 18 months at the work that has been done to um, refurbish buildings or to put in place the, the modular or rapid build units, that has been extremely disappointing in terms of the number of beds that is yielded. It's only been about 6,000. We know that civil society and we know that families, um, the length and breadth of Ireland have um, been extremely generous when it comes to providing rooms and and spare buildings for people, particularly from Ukraine as well. So there is a lot of goodwill out there. Government needs medium to long-term accommodation. Just finally, John, before I let you go, can I ask you, I mean, if we were to look at this in in 12 months' time, what will it look like from your own experience in terms of tents on streets? Well, we, we've had people in tents, unfortunately, now for um, well over a year. There are a number of locations around the country. Nakashin in County Clare is 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 one example where people have been in those conditions for quite a while. We now hit a situation for the second this year where people are street homeless in Dublin, despite the fact that the government was found to be in breach of their obligations under the reception conditions um, directive earlier year. Um, we hope that this gets um, gets sorted out. We know that there are wars, there's persecution, there's torture, there's um, displacement of people right across the world. The UNHCR figures show that there are over 100 million people now who have been forcibly displaced from their homes. We're only getting a small, small trickle of them to, to Ireland in terms of the numbers. We are a relatively well-off country. We have a high GDP, or higher than most other countries in the world. So we should be able to provide for the small numbers of people who come here seeking protection. John Lannan, for now, thank you for joining us. Well, to stay with that story um, and talk to former OT journalist, PR and comms expert Paul Allen of Paul Allen and Associates uh, joins us this morning. Paul, has the government lost Middle Ireland on this? Has the narrative slipped away from them? 
Good morning, Alan. Well, firstly, I'm in favour of a multiracial country uh, at this stage. But yeah, there's an election in the air for next year. People are jumpy and uh, politicians are seizing out the opportunity. We only have to look at what's been in the newspapers since uh, the weekend with that dreadful fire in Galway. That's not the first time. It happened in Ruski, it happened in Rosslare, it happened in Donegal, it happened in Kill and Kildare, it happened in Moville, it'll happen again. And uh, nobody is accountable and nobody will be charged for this um, because the Gardaí are under-resourced, demoralised, and it's, it's a perfect storm for um, people wanting to cause mischief. Now, the people who are causing mischief, uh, one would be led to believe that it's those on the far right. However, it would seem that it's not necessarily the far right, that it could be people who are embedded in these communities themselves, because we see where the Garda are investigating the possibility where the latest incident may have been perpetrated by a local individual who's not necessarily linked to the far right. That is worrying. Well, I think the far right is a great excuse for people who are just uh, troublemakers, uh, football hooligans, um, people who just um, probably spend all day doing nothing and then decide uh, to take some issues out. Uh, the riots in Dublin were a disgrace. What can happen in Dublin can happen in the rest of the country. But talking to my friends in rural Ireland, and I spend time in rural Ireland, the areas are filling up. People cannot cope. Um, local hotels, that I say, would have been enjoying weddings and events. The hotels in the area with these wedding and events would have knock-on effects in terms of clothes shops, people buying clothes, the hairdressing, people going in to get dressed up and various things like that. That's all gone now. So the fabric in rural Ireland is being lost because the hotels are being full with people that are coming to Ireland. Um, and we ha see it in the UK. This is an international dilemma. It's not just Ireland. You see what's happening in the UK uh, with people being sent away into different areas. This is a critical issue. Uh, and certainly people in rural Ireland are saying this is enough is enough. Um, and I don't know where it's going to end, but civil servants, this is not happening in Dublin 4. This is happening in rural Ireland and people are not dealing with the matter. Um, and as I said, there's an election coming next week or next year rather. So freedom of movement will continue. It's an international problem, but the country is almost full to the brim, to, to paraphrase that politician in, in, in Galway. Yeah, but nonetheless, we are obliged under international law to accept refugees who are being persecuted or people who are fleeing war, such as Ukraine. So our obligation is there. The difficulty for us is when they arrive, what we do with them. So going back, I suppose, to my initial question, where or why was there an information deficit on the part of the government? Or is that just the easy path in terms of finger pointing from the journalists and uh, opposition politicians' perspective? Or is it much wider than just the government's narrative? Well, in any proper communications plan, you can't just impose a business, an organization, or people in agribusiness opening a creamery. You need to engage with the local community. Say in the case of a creamery, there will be issues with um, water supply and getting rid of various bits and pieces, waste and things like that. So you need to engage with the community. You can't just arrive in and say, hey, guys, tough luck. We're moving in next door. It doesn't work like that. And and certainly, as I said to you, I'm in, I'm in favor uh, of a, a multiracial country. But international protection and the Ukrainians, we helped the Ukrainians. My company and I helped the Ukrainians when they came in. There was 16, 20, 30, 100,000 now in the country. 
And we also tried to get some property in Dublin Ford, the old Jury's Hotel. We tried to have that converted into rooms and accommodation for people. But the powers that be were not being of any help to us in terms of sorting matters out. But um, Ireland is going through a change that other European countries are going through. We only have to remember, and what's not helping the matter is the beautiful lady, uh, Ashling Murphy, the trial, and Mr. Puskas, the uh, attack of the uh, the men, the single men living in Sligo. Uh, two gentlemen were killed. Um, it's not helping. It's just fanning the flames of insanity and madness by people who are just looking for trouble all the time. If I may just say in terms of looking for, um, people will say, well, can we not suss out who these people are when they're coming in? Can we not clarify who they are? Are the guards not doing that? My good pal, his son is still waiting for Gar the Vetting uh, to train and coach some uh, young members of a GAA team, not a million miles away from your uh, studio there. But it's taking for ages. Meanwhile, people are still coming in. They're strolling around the country. It's causing all sorts of problems. It is something that must be sorted out. But can I also just say, post-COVID, 70,000 people left this country. Um, we need people to help us out. And wonderful carers in hospitals, in, in nursing homes, in restaurants, in hotels. We need these people to help us move this country on. The country is growing beyond its, 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 um, its basic structure, and we need people to help us. And proper systems need to be put in place. But you cannot just plonk people in an area and expect the residents to say, hey, what's going on here? Can I just ask you in relation to, I suppose, what you do in terms of comms and PR and freedom of speech and one's right to express one's opinion within certain parameters as laid down by the law? Surely the likes of those two councillors yesterday are entitled to say what they said. It's fair comment from their perception and we should not be hamstrung by saying what we want to say as long as it's within the confines of those parameters as laid down in law, Paul. Absolutely. But the two councillors who um, are going to be running for the local elections next year will certainly be voted in with tremendous surplus because they're speaking out. Uh, and at the moment... In they're perhaps just amp amplifying what, what they're, the, the, those who voted for them uh, expect of them to say. They're amplifying Absolutely. what they believe. All politics is local. Uh, and at a time when the big boys in politics are worrying about Sinn Féin, the shine is coming off Sinn Féin in terms of Ona Bryn and his ranting on about housing. There are other political forces that will come out of the out of the traps fairly quickly and surprise a lot of people wondering how on earth did that person get elected? How did this new party arrive? There are issues out there that face everybody. But as I said a moment ago, all politics is local. Somebody needs to listen to the locals and represent their interests. And that's what's going to happen. If this is not just Ireland only. The international elections are coming up. The European elections, we will see this right across Europe. This is something that's not akin to our backyard and our country at the moment, our little country at the moment, it's going to happen. Freedom of movement is an issue that is across Europe and it's across the world today. And if we look at Europe, what is happening in terms of the political shift there, it's shifting towards the right. Look what's happening um, in Holland. Looks, look at Italy, look at France. You can pick any number of countries. Are we facing the prospect, albeit we don't really see a, a viable right-wing party. What moderate people would want a right-wing party to be in this country? Is there room for one, do you believe? Not the ultra-right now, but right, probably slightly, well, you only slightly have to, right. You only have to see in the, the, the leader of in, in the country like Italy, um, the, the, the issues that got her elected, 
they're certainly not the uh, the issues she's dealing with at the moment. Um, she was pro Brexit. Now she's sorry. She was against Brexit. Now she's pro Brexit. Um, so politicians change their tune as often as we change our socks. Just finally, my case um, is regular. Let me let me ask you, Paul. How does the government win back the the narrative on this because it is slipped from them? Well, the minister in responsible for for the uh, arrival and the freedom of movement uh, of these displaced people um, is not doing what he should be doing. He did the same thing with nursing homes, and you see the calamity that he got himself involved in. Um, he just needs to get out. The government needs to get out and, and, and talk and engage with communities and listen to what's going on. We have two ears and one mouth. Need to listen more than we say. But there's no point taking ads in the morning Ireland. The community that you're going to be talking to don't listen to RTE. They don't buy the Irish Times. They uh, are engaging in a different sort of media. Social media, absolutely. But they need to understand and respect this is an issue, while it may be overcrowding at a crisis point, rural Ireland cannot cope at the moment and people need to listen. And it's destroying the fabric of many communities because you see the local hotel once was the centre of a wedding and events, now is closed. And, and rural Ireland needs hotels, needs hairdressers, it needs coffee shops. But these places are being staffed by the new Irish that are coming in here. We had a terrific day yesterday in Dublin when another 3,000 people became Irish citizens. It's wonderful. We need to embrace all this. And as I said when I started, we need to be a multiracial country and we need to just take control of the matter. Very good. Paul Allen of Paul Allen and Associates. Thank you for joining us. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. A deal paving the way for the DUP to return to Stormont is extremely unlikely before Christmas, party sources have suggested. However, they reveal progress is being made towards an agreement that could see power sharing restored in the new year. Crucially, the DUP's influential group of party officers is understood to be leaning towards a return. While joining us this morning is Peter McVerry of our sister station, U105 in Belfast, for the very latest on this. Peter, thanks for taking our call. Um, Am I missing something here? Did I not detect a pep in Jeffrey Donaldson's step last week that evaporated within 48 hours and we're now at a point where there's a bit of procrastination coming back into things. Absolutely, yeah. You'll have you, heard him saying last week, Alan, that um, the time for a decision was approaching, but that time now seems to have a gift stamp of 2024 rather than 2023. Uh, there was... Positive music coming last week, but then, as you say, after Friday and a meeting of his party officers, a dozen of them that seemed to evaporate, and it looks to be the DUP position that they want to try and sort out what the financial issues are. And, and they and the other main parties are meeting with the Secretary of State, Chris Heaton-Ars, this morning at Hillsborough. And then, in parallel to that, um, try to sort out the issues around the, the Windsor framework. But it looks as if they're going to leave a decision on those political issues uh, until the new year after they potentially see what the colour of the government's money is as well, and also to allow probably Sir Geoffrey a bit more time to get his mm-hmm. own ducks in a row and to brief his own party, because the DUP notoriously, if you remember back to, to whenever we get Stormont up and running, after the RHI scandal when Sinn Féin pulled it down, Sinn Féin at one point thought they had a deal to get it back, the DUP said yes on a Friday, and then on a Monday they said no, because they'd taken it to the party and they couldn't get the support. So I think Sir Geoffrey probably wants to avoid that again. Now, are we to presume that perhaps he doesn't have control of the party in the manner in which he would like to, given that he was brought to task over his his public statements in relation to where we're at with the restoration of Stormont last week? Is he losing things? Not sure yet if he's, if, if he's losing it, but totally agree 
that he may not have them on board as well. The, 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 I suppose the, the diplomatic way they say it would be that the DUP is a very broad church. Uh, people have asked before, is there a split within the DUP about whether or not they should return to Stormont? But the, the factual answer up until now is that there hasn't been a split because they haven't had a decision to make. It's all been hypothetical. And anybody who isn't in favour of a return or an immediate return to Stormont hasn't really had to do anything because they haven't had a decision to make. Now it does feel a little bit more like it's approaching D-Day and you have more people, including those 12 people within the party executive, who are making their voices heard a little bit more, who make it more more difficult for uh, Sir Geoffrey, should he be one of those who wants to bring Stormont okay. back. You know, and so there's been, there's been delays and that. Delays are nothing new in Northern Ireland, Alan. Christmas deadlines are nothing new in Northern Ireland. And Christmas deadlines that fail to be met are nothing new in Northern Ireland. 2.5 billion is on the table. That is just the opening amount. I would presume that the DUP would be looking for that to be going north considerably of that figure. The carrot and stick approach seems to be what is being adopted by Chris Heaton Harris. Is that a reasonable assessment of where we're at? It is. And the hope from the parties in the last 48 hours had been. That, that t- today in those talks with Chris Eaton Harris, they might get an improved offer on the table. All of the parties are in agreement and they need more more money. They want some of it backdated. They've accused the Treasury uh, in London of reheating some money and saying that out of that $2.5 billion, there's maybe only half of it, which is actually new money. But given the declaration from uh, the DUP, given their clear intent not to, to reach a deal this set of Christmas, I'd be very surprised if Chris Eaton Harris put any more money on the table Today, uh, they're likely to keep their powder dry as well until we get into to January, unless he really wants to call the bluff of the DEP and, and say that the, the discussions about the Windsor framework are now at an end, that there's increased money on in the table and it's up to the DEP to make a decision and to say yes or no. But the Secretary of State is treading a thin line because he does need the DEP and those who want to go back to Stormont on side if he wants to get Stormont back up and running again. So I suspect that we'll have, we are expecting a statement from Chris Heaton Harris later this afternoon after his meeting with the four main parties. Be interesting to hear the tone that he adopts then, but the speculation is that his tone he will talk about wanting to, to, to get a deal, he will talk about being close to reaching a deal. It's not thought that he'll deliver any ultimatums at this stage, and it's more likely all the items will come in the first 10 to 14 days of January. Because we have another date looming on the 18th of January when he has to take a decision about what to do on the budget and what to do with the future of Stormont. The concessions on the Windsor framework, are they palatable for the DUP to park those and concentrate on where we're at in terms of the cash, or is there more work to be done on the Windsor framework? The true answer is that the, the cash makes it a little bit more palatable. There is some more work to be done on the Windsor framework, but the work it feels like is to be done in the, the semantics around that and the, the spinning of that. The DEP very famously set out their seven tests. Our understanding is that this won't meet uh, the latter uh, of the seven tests. Uh, the, the question for them is they can't convince the party and the supporters that it meets the spirit of the seven tests, that they've got enough movement um, to go back into Stormont and that anything else that they want to achieve can be done okay. within the confines of Stormont with a united voice in the Northern Ireland Executive rather than with the DUP being a lone voice and holding uh, devolution in Northern Ireland to ransom. Okay, we'll leave it there. Peter McVerry of our sister station U105 in Belfast. Thank you for talking to us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back. In a significant advance for LGBT people in the Roman Catholic Church, Pope Francis has allowed priests to bless same-sex couples. The leader of the Catholic Church said priests should be permitted to bless same-sex and irregular couples under certain circumstances. But the Vatican said blessings should not be part of a regular church ritual or related to civil unions or weddings. Joining us this morning 
morning to discuss this is Father Iggy O'Donovan, Augustinian priest and formerly of this parish, who's now based in Tip. Uh, Iggy, good morning. Thanks for taking the call. Um, looking at this, I suppose if you were to read it as a headline, it looks fairly game-changing. However, scratching on the surface, it's just peppered with caveats everywhere. So on one hand he's given, but on the other hand he's saying, yeah, well, you can only do it under these circumstances. So it's not really giving it its full blessing. It's, it's certainly not a full blessing. No way. And and uh, I know you mentioned there the caveats, even something as simple as that the, the dress code on the day should not be seen as appropriate to a wedding. Now, I, I don't know how you define that. <laughs> really, what is the dress code on the day? But uh, nevertheless, I suppose a generation ago, it would have been quite revolutionary to make any move at all. And those of us who suggested it at the time, I remember... Some of us were seen as dangerous rebels and outcasts and heretics. But uh, it, it is a move. But, Alan, I'd say I hope I don't, like, I don't want to throw any water or rain on Pope Francis's parade. But I think it has reached a point where I don't know is it any longer really fully relevant. Does it count for that much? Because uh, I... Uh, Older listeners may be familiar with that great old movie, Gone with the Wind, and the great final line of Clark Gable, where he says, look, frankly, I don't give a damn. I'm detecting from people at the moment that when it comes to the street credibility of people like myself in these matters, frankly, most people don't give a damn. They've made up their minds. They have moved on. We had our chance. We funked the ball when it was passed to us down the years in so many other areas. So that when it's come to this one now, I have no great expectation, not because I wouldn't be in favour of it, but because I think people have moved on. They'll make mm. their own arrangements. They'll marry the way they want, when of they course. want, where they want. The same with, by, by, the, by the way, the same with other things such as funerals and other things. It's happening too. But... Uh, I, I think, Iggy, what this does is clearly um, show Pope Francis for what he is. Somebody who on the one hand wants to be seen to be progressive and make changes in the church but is so disconnected from the grassroots that he just doesn't realise that by not going the full journey on this he's isolated himself again. Now, he's not playing with a united party. I I, I get that. He's not a one-party government because uh, even the little concessions he has made and his recent uh, synod and synodality and so forth, if people still remember that. I think we're... Are we losing Iggy there? Yeah, do you know something, Iggy, just, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to ring you back um, in two seconds there. We'll just try you on another line and see if we can get uh, a conversation with you just before the news at 10 o'clock this morning. Uh, don't forget, if you want to, to get in on any of the discussion we're having here on the programme this morning, you can text us or you can email michael at lmfm.ie. We're just trying to get Iggy back before uh, we go to the news at 10 o'clock. We had a bit of a difficulty there with his line. It was breaking up. So we'll uh, just bear with us for two seconds. Just uh, to remind you, coming up after 10 o'clock on the programme, we'll be discussing Ireland's economic future. The Central Bank has released its quarterly report. We'll be discussing that with a member of the Central Bank's executive uh, a little bit after 10 o'clock on the news. I don't think we're going to get Iggy back before 10 o'clock, are we? Going to take a break there, Chris?
Yeah, we'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Economic activity measured by GDP will likely contract for the year as a whole. At the same time, the domestic economy, as measured by modified domestic demand, will grow. Modified domestic demand is forecast to grow by 1.5% in 2023, 2.5% in 2024, and 1.9% in 25. Headline inflation has fallen in 2023 and is expected to return to 2.1% in 2025. That's according to the Central Bank's quarterly bulletin 23. To slash uh, to the last quarter, big important in 2023. Joining us uh, this morning is Martin O'Brien, Head of Irish Economic Analysis for the uh, Central Bank. Uh, Martin, thanks for taking our call. I want to just deal with the two metrics here separately. Let's start with GDP. GDP um, includes FDI, so we're talking multinationals here. No great surprise that that's going to contract given the pharma boom which we saw over COVID. And we'll get back to more normal levels, presumably. Good morning, Alan. Yes, you're right. And GDP, as we know, doesn't necessarily reflect, uh, you know, to the to the greatest extent the underlying developments in the in the domestic economy, the Irish economy, or that shall we say the real feel for most Irish people uh, on a day to day basis. Uh, but yeah, uh, what we're seeing in terms of the contraction this year is twofold. One is that normalisation issue. I mean, we you know the pandemic led to a boom in uh, you know vaccine production. Obviously, Ireland was an important part of that. Um, and also on the ICT uh, manufacturing and services side, there was, a, there was a, a big boom in that in that sector too. But what we're seeing this year is in part a normalisation of that, those activities. Um, you know, there isn't such a, a, a demand for vaccine production, etc. Uh, and and uh, but also it is also the case that you know when we look across the globe, you know, interest rates have uh, been rising. They've risen in order to bring inflation back down to you know targets in, in the various in both the euro area and in our trading partners, and that's also weighing to a certain extent. On, on demand conditions in our trading partners and as well domestically as well. Uh, and so those two combination of factors, really, the, uh, the, the normalisation of activity in the two very important sectors of pharma and ICT uh, and the general sort of slowdown in, in demand and in trading conditions as a result of the higher interest rate environment, you know, those two things are, are featuring into the, into the GDP numbers. And well, of course, we saw that trickle down into jobs figures coming from uh, FDI, 0.3% down uh, on on jobs, no no big deal there. It's just, I suppose, a a readjustment post what has happened uh, after COVID. But looking at the future in terms of GDP, where are you at in that in terms of predictions out to the future? So um, the expectation is that you know GDP will grow next year in the region of two and a half percent, and will grow again, you know, closer to four, maybe above four percent, uh, you know, out beyond that into 2025 and 2026. Uh, and really, that's uh, you know, as uh, as trading conditions you know, normalise, you know, as the sort of the, the extraordinary year of 2022 sort of drops out of year-on-year comparisons, we get this sort of boost to, to the growth profile, you know, going forward. And again, you know, the two sectors in particular that sort of drive that from an Irish perspective, the ICT sector, the pharmaceutical sector, you know, the medium to longer term prospects for those sectors is all you know, is quite positive. The companies that are involved in that are at the frontier. We would expect that that would continue and that, that would be, uh, you know, a significant generation of value uh, in, in the Irish economy. You know, they're not necessarily as employment intensive as the, you know, as the, the, the more domestically focused sectors uh, but, you know, they do you know, provide a lot of, uh, you know, corporation tax receipts. You know, they're high value added jobs. There's income tax related to those as well. 
So it's important that we uh, that we do have a, a, a vibrant sort of multinational uh, you know, enterprise sector that's you know, okay. providing uh, valuable to the country. Looking at these figures, um, did you factor in external economic shocks, um, unknowns as it were, perhaps an escalation of the conflict in the Middle East, the Ukrainian war, downturn and other economic e- economies which may have the butterfly effect that could affect us perhaps in a year or 18 months? Yeah, so those are definitely downside real risks to the forecast. You know, and if we were to look at the, you know, the sort of the constellation of risks there at the moment, you know, for the growth outlook, both domestically and in the in the GDP terms, you know, those kind of issues of geopolitical tensions, you know, the potential for another spike in inflation if there's energy price you know shocks or any price issues as a result of like you know, the oil 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 issues that we've seen in the Middle East at the moment, you know, these kind of issues could present you know more challenges to the growth outlook. Um, you know that you know, growth could be weaker than what we have in our current expectation. Inflation could be a little bit higher. You know, but broadly speaking, what we're actually you know our central expectation and our central forecast is for you know in essence growth rates to moderate, not to be as significant as they were in 2022, uh, uh, and for the domestic economy in particular to you know to continue to perform relatively robustly, uh, for the labour market to be strong, and importantly for inflation to come back down to two uh, percent. Okay, let's talk about the domestic economy, modified domestic demand and growth uh, as its forecast in Ireland. How are we looking? Have we come out of the cost of living crisis? Is inflation under control? And are we feeling, you know, a sense of optimism? Where's consumer sentiment, for example? So consumer sentiment has remained you know, relatively positive. It has improved a little bit during 2023, in the, in the early months of 2023, when we start to see those rates of inflation come down from the very high rates that we had in the last end of 2022 and in the early parts of this year. So inflation has been easing. You know, there is, you know, incomes are growing, wages are growing. Uh, we see that, you know, in, in sort of you know, households purchasing power overall is going to rise marginally in 2023 and will continue to rise. You know, you know real incomes will continue to rise for households in the region of 2.5%. So over the next two to three years per, uh, on a per annum basis. So that's really going to support you know, consumer spending. It's going to support investment in the domestic economy. Uh, and that, the combination of you know, inflation coming down you know, from the very high levels that we have uh, back towards the 2% uh, next year um, and those increases in income, that, those two factors are really supporting uh, growth of about, you know, averaging 2% in the domestic economy uh, over the next two to three years. What's your assessment then on interest rates coming down? Because we heard Christine Lagarde, I think it would have been last week, saying that she wants to see the figures. She wants to see inflation coming down further and she wants to see it staying down before there's any talk of interest rates. Now, we hear some economists in the markets are factoring in perhaps we'll see a decrease early in the new year, the first quarter. Is that re- reasonable? So I think, you know, President Lagarde and the ECB have been very clear as to, you know, what are the factors that they need to see and what are the factors that we need to look at and monitor to inform interest rate decisions into the future. Uh, and those, this is the, the data-dependent approach, as you, as you mentioned. Uh, and really the key thing is there, you know, how the interplay between wages, business costs, uh, you know, productivity levels in the economy, how those two two or three things you know, interact to basically see, well, are we seeing those business costs being passed back to consumer prices, needing inflation to be higher? 
Are we seeing sort of excessive demand in the economy, your relative to supply conditions? Are we seeing you know, things basically, the, the hard yards, if I can mm. put it to you like that, of the, of the remainder of the disinflation process? Is that actually happening? So what we're so talking about is, is, is wage negotiation early next year, early 2024. That will account for a lot in terms of what decisions are going to be made. It will to a certain extent. And, you know, there will be a lot of factors coming in the first half of 2024, I think, that uh, people will be monitoring and then you know, using that as a judgment in terms of where interest rates should be going beyond that. Now, have we seen the increase in interest rates feeding in to consumers into the economy in this country, particularly for those on tracker rates? Because it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like flicking a switch. It takes time to, to filter through. Have we seen it filtering through to the full extent yet? Um, so in terms of the path through to you know, interest rates that people would see on their loans and their deposits, we have started to see that and we have seen that to, to a great extent. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, and particularly for you know, people like tracker mortgage holders where there's an automatic sort of link between the ECB rate and their own tracker mortgage rate. Uh, we've also seen it for you know, standard variable rate mortgage holders. And importantly, we're also starting to see it, but very marginally, um, in, in on deposit rates as well, particularly for sort of you know, longer term, you know, fixed rate deposits, etc. So that has started. It has sort of ramped up a little bit in the last sort of three to four months. But the impact of that on, say, the rest of the economy in terms of like you know, people's demand levels in the economy, what they're, you know, they're, they're spending on, what they're saving, you know, that's, that, that's still, uh, you know, a lot of that is still to come. So the trickle down of that higher interest rate environment on people's you know, spending decisions, uh, the, the bulk of that we think will actually happen during the course of 2024. Okay. Uh, but... That's why we're seeing on the interest rate pass-through. Looking at from the government's uh, perspective, what is it a case of steady as she goes? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Those are prudent fiscal management. So, you know, you know our advice would, has consistently been, you know, the sense of we need to ensure that, you know, there's... Um, that basically the domestic policy, fiscal policy is not adding to excessive levels of demand in the economy. 
So, you know, being mindful that you know, we have this inflation issue, we've had this inflation issue for a couple of years now, uh, it's, you know, being successfully, you know, addressed through monetary policy uh, and that, you know, domestic fiscal policy shouldn't necessarily work at cross purposes with that. We know that inflation is, in essence, a tax on everybody uh, and it particularly impacts those on lower incomes and those on fixed incomes. So it's necessary that we take the appropriate support measures for, for those who are most impacted while at the same time not stoking you know, medium-term inflationary pressures. So you know, having a fiscal stance and a fiscal approach that doesn't you know, add too much demand into the economy overall, that's certainly what we would be and have been advocating for. Uh, and that's uh, you know, consistent with the message that we've been having for a couple of months now. You weren't particularly happy with the catch-all approach adopted by the government in relation to fiscal supports around energy uh, credits or whatever. They should have been more targeted. Are you still of that view? Uh, we certainly do think that there is more benefit in uh, more targeted measures. Uh, we know when we look at, say, some of the, the data and some of the analysis that we have done that the households at the lower end of the income distribution, uh, you know, their you know, their real purchasing power you know, took a significant hit during the pandemic, during the um, during the, the the inflationary spike that we had from the war in Ukraine. And their purchasing power basically is back to around the 2016-2017 level. Um, you know, whereas households on average and households you know further up the income distribution, you know, their purchasing power is basically you know back to 2019-2020 levels and and, and grown even further. So uh, targeted measures which are able to you know support those which are most in need, you know, for a given fiscal cost is certainly something that we would be okay. you know advocating for. Two quick questions before we go. First off, employment uh, numbers. It's looking like, if I'm reading them correctly, that we're probably going to go back to where we were around about 2019, around about the 4.8, 4.9, possibly 5%. Is, is that where you, what you're looking at? Yeah, we're still looking at unemployment in the region of 45 to 5% over the next two to three years, which you know, would be consistent with very strong levels of employment growth overall. Um, you know, it would be what well, you know close to what we would consider to be what we call full employment in the economy. So the economy is basically operating, you know, in line with its potential. And you know, the tight labour market that we have seen, it is supporting wage increases, it is supporting, uh, you know, uh, you know, increased labour costs. Uh, and is supporting household disposable income growth over the next two okay. years. Just finally, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, no doubt you had listened with great uh, interest to what they had to say in relation to October's budget. Fiscal gimmickry, they called it. What's your view on it? Um, so, I mean, we, we set out our views with respect to the budget in advance. Um, you know, the budget is expansionary in the sense that it's adding uh, more demand to the economy than, uh, than you know, sort of a more neutral stance would, would give. And it does run the risk of, you know, having inflation in Ireland being a little bit higher than what would otherwise have been the case uh, if a more sort of neutral stance was taken with the budget. And it just, you know, feeds back to this point we raised before about, you know, having a, a, a careful perspective on uh, on domestic policy to ensure that we don't keep those inflationary pressures that we've all had witnessed in the last two to three years. We don't keep them, you know, uh, you know uh, higher than what they would otherwise be the case over the next two to three years. There we leave it. Martin O'Brien, head of Irish economic analysis for the Central Bank. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Dublin Rape Crisis Centre says Christmas can be a dreaded time of the year for victims and survivors of sexual violence. The charity is expecting greater numbers of people than last year to seek its support over the festive period and 
and is making a plea to those needing support to reach out. According to CEO Rachel Morrow, D or CC knows from previous years that Christmas can be an extremely isolating and stressful time for victims and survivors of rape and sexual assault. Last year, the Free Phone National Rape Crisis Helpline supported a caller every hour over Christmas Eve, Christmas Day and Stephen's Day. And they're expecting the National Helpline to be as busy over the festive period this year. Joining us this morning is CEO Rachel Morrow. Rachel, good morning. And let me first of all congratulate you on your recent appointment. You've been in the chair for a number of weeks. We'll we'll have a chat about that later. But let's just talk about um, Christmas and why is, is is the line so busy over Christmas? Why the prevalence of assault, of sexual assault, etc.? Hi, Alan. Good morning and thank you for that. Congratulations. Um, yes, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre um, has been monitoring this for a number of years. And what we've noticed is that Christmas is a really difficult time for people who have experienced either a recent or a historical um, incident of sexual violence. So what we see is that people do feel really isolated and alone over Christmas. So while the rest of the population is celebrating and there's much joy and merriment, obviously, in, in many houses around the country for people who've suffered sexual violence, um, it can be a really traumatic time. And one of the reasons is that eight in 10 survivors of sexual violence actually know the perpetrator. So it's not unlikely that they're actually in the same home or the same friend circles as the person um, who has um, attacked them or raped them. Um, And this obviously is a significant trigger for them. And our message this Christmas is to please reach out to the National Rape Crisis Helpline. And as you said, the number is 1-800-77-8888. We are waiting for people's calls. We will be open 24 hours every day over Christmas. And we also have a web chat service. So like I said, if you maybe you're in the same house as the perpetrator, it might be difficult to snatch some time to make that call. Um, but you can contact us via web text as well mm-hmm. um, and have a conversation um, you know, in silence, I suppose. OK, let's talk about then somebody who makes contact with the helpline. They obviously hear an understanding voice, a voice that can give them direction and help. But ultimately, can they advise them and can they direct them towards getting them out of a situation and putting them into a safe place? Absolutely. So we have specialist um, crisis support counsellors on the the helpline and my message would be that whatever your experiences won't be the first time that they have helped or supported somebody in that situation. So if somebody is in a crisis situation, um, then obviously we would advise them um, to make contact with the guards and get themselves out of that situation. Um, we provide, like I said, support around the clock. Um, and the, in terms of like the numbers of people we're going to be hearing from um, over this, this December period, Alan, um, is around 660 is kind of what we, what we saw last year. But this is going to double um, in January. And this is because people might have a delayed effect in terms of reaching out um, to us or other um, support uh, centres. But again, our message is don't delay. Please contact us. We can deal with whatever issue it is that you're facing. Rachel, can I just perhaps broaden this out a little and talk about a Council of Europe report which was published last month which pointed to serious shortcomings in how women and children in Ireland are protected from violence and murder. Now, it's a report that is... um, 
it, it's quite shocking in terms of what it is revealing and it got very little coverage in this country. Perhaps we could talk about where the shortcomings are in this country and I'm specifically taken by the lack of support and understanding when it comes to, to the judicial system. So I think that in terms of what needs to be done, uh, first of all, like I, I would like to give recognition to the government um, who have really um, grabbed what has been traditionally in Ireland a very thorny issue. Um, we have a national strategy um, with respect to um, domestic sexual um, violence in the country, um, and they are implementing that obviously you know, us as the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, we believe that more does need to be done. And in that respect, we think that there is there needs to be a dual focus. One is to reduce the prevalence of sexual violence. And the second is to provide wraparound support for anybody who is affected by the issue. So we need to invest as a society in initiatives that challenge these cultural and social attitudes that all of us have grown up with um, because they do provide a, a tolerant environment for sexual violence to exist. And the second is to ensure that supports are in place where and when survivors of sexual violence need them. Um, and part of that, like you said, is a victim-informed path to justice um, for anyone who wants to go down that road. And just in respect of the support that the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre can give um, along that, that path to justice, we do offer an accompaniment service um, for anybody who does want to report an incident to the Gardaí, we will accompany them to Garda stations and we'll also accompany accompany them um, in court. And that service offers victims and their supporters who may be family or friends practical and emotional support if they're making a statement, like I said, to Gardaí or attending court itself. It strikes me um, that women, particularly with children, may be somewhat reluctant to go down the path of seeking support because there's always the fear that social services would take their children into care. That is a real problem, is it not? We know that women um, are very affected by the issue of sexual violence. Um, in terms of the prevalence of it, one in two women um, will experience sexual violence in their lifetime. And it's particularly an issue for younger women as well. Um, we know that women aged between 18 and 24, um, that more than um, 60% of them will experience or have experienced sexual violence in their lifetime. And when you consider that they're under 25 years old, um, that is obviously very considerable. We also know, just on that point you're making, around telling other people, we know that um, around 8 in 10 people will never tell anyone. And that's hugely significant as well. Um, so the, there are huge challenges there around the stigma of sexual violence um, and you know, people not wanting to talk about it. But again, our message this Christmas is to please reach out to the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. It's totally confidential um, and, and we will be there to support you. We tend to probably focus probably too much on physical violence. There is also mental violence, coercive control. That is a real problem. Absolutely. Um, we know that, again, many people know their perpetrator. Um, and when we looked at our figures of the people who have been accessing our therapy, again, another free service um, that the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre um, provides, um, that people were telling us that they had experienced um, one of our two, one in two, sorry, of our new therapy clients were experiencing other types of violence in addition 
to the main abuse that they were telling us about. So one in three were experiencing physical abuse, one in three were experiencing intimidation, and over um, uh, two in ten were experiencing um, psychological abuse. So there is absolutely um, a, a pattern of behaviour um, that, that, that people are suffering. Um, many times a, a sexual violence or a rape will take place um, in someone's own home or in the assailant's home. Um, so it's the home itself um, is not a safe place um, when it comes to people who are intent on perpetrating sexual violence. And that's why this Christmas message, message is so important. OK, let me ask you, um, just be- before we leave things, Rachel, you've been in the seat, as it were, for a number of weeks now, having assumed the role of CEO of the uh, Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Uh, what's your primary focus within the first 100 days? What do you want to achieve? What do you want to change? Well, what I'm really concerned about, um, I suppose, is that the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre is there when people need it. And that's why I was really keen to get this Christmas message out. Um, What I would be concerned about is that people aren't contacting the DRCC. So in terms of the first 100 days, it's to try to increase the numbers of people um, who reach out to us. Because I know that the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre can offer this this nationwide service in terms of our helpline and our web chat. And I just want people to know about it and to know that we're here and that we're listening here. Um, We we, we want to wrap our arms around you. We want to um, we want to support you. And that's really my focus. And have you identified the barriers as to why they are not contacting the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre if they find themselves in a position that they are finding they are in a a violent or psychologically um, abusive relationship? Yeah, I think that it's connected to that point I was saying around fewer than half people, um, half of people who've experienced sexual violence are telling anyone. Um, You know, I'm not sure that they know that the, the DRCC, it's a confidential service. Um, So I think that people, if they're not telling anyone, they're not telling the DRCC either. Um, And that's what I want to change, you know, to to really address that stigma that's associated with sexual violence and to let people know again that we are here, um, it is confidential and we want to support people. We leave it there, Rachel Morrow, uh, the CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Thank you for joining us. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. The United Nations Security Council is due to vote later on a new ceasefire motion. Reports say the language has been watered down to a suspension of hostilities to get the US backing it. The council's new bid for a pause in fighting comes 10 days after a previous attempt, which was blocked by one of Israel's biggest allies, the United States. Joining us this morning is Karen Coleman, editor, EU News Radio, which uh, covers EU news for Irish radio stations. Uh, morning, Karen. Thanks for joining us. It seems there might be a shift in position here. It's all about the wording and that's what's delaying the vote. Is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, well, that's what seems to be happening at the moment, Alan, because this vote um, was supposed to have taken place yesterday, but it was delayed because, according to reports, the US wasn't happy with the original call in the re- resolution, which was for an urgent and sustainable cessation of hostilities. Uh, they objected to the word sustainable cessation. Now there's talk about the language being watered down to um, suspension of hostilities. And this is in order to get the U.S. support for the resolution. Now, that would be a step if the U.S. did indeed back a mm. new uh, resolution on this, because, of course, they had rejected the previous one. 
And that, that was, as I understand it, in relation to wording again, that there was no condemnation of what had happened that um, precipitated the actions by the Israelis against Hamas. So are we going to see some wording around condemnation in this resolution? Well, from uh, as far as I can gather, the, this new resolution has been drafted by the UAE and it's one of the... Um, uh, non-permanent members of the UN Security Council. And I, as I understand it from the reports uh, about that draft resolution, that it is going to include some kind of general condemnation of uh, terrorist attacks and violations of international humanitarian law. Because I think one of the problems the United States had with the original uh, resolution that was put some um, in early December was that there wasn't enough condemnation of Hamas. Now I gather um, there is going to be stronger condemnation just generally of violations of international law, including all indiscriminate attacks against civilians and civilian objects and and violence and hostilities against civilians and all acts of terrorism. So that may be enough to get us across the line, to get the US to change its position. And even if it's passed, that doesn't necessarily mean that there will be, of course, a sustainable or a suspension Mm -hmm. of hostilities, because even though a a UN Security Council resolution is legally binding, it is the case that parties do not necessarily adhere to it. So it may be passed, but that doesn't mean there Mm -hmm. will be a cessation of hostilities. It strikes me that the one who's under most pressure here is... um it's, it's Joe Biden, President Biden, and I say that in the context of the pressure that he is coming under uh, in relation to his own position politically at home. It is in his interest to get this ceasefire. Will he get it, do you think? Will he put pressure on the Israelis to capitulate? Or does he have that sort of power to put the screw on Benjamin Netanyahu? Well, I mean, we, we keep hearing that the United States is Israel's greatest ally and that they have fully supported Israel in its campaign against Hamas. We have seen a slight change, maybe some might say a greater change over the last um, couple of days, maybe a bit more um, calling on Israel to be more targeted in terms of its campaign against Hamas. But nevertheless, Lloyd Austin who is the uh, U.S. Defense Secretary, he recently visited um, Netanyahu. And in a statement released by Netanyahu's office following that meeting, um, they said America's commitment to Israel is unwavering and no individual group or state should test our resolve according to that statement. Um, and But nevertheless, Biden last week did warn Israel it was losing international support because of the indiscriminate bombing. So it may be that that support is now more nuanced. Um, And I, you know, if any country can persuade Israel to stop the current kind of campaign against the Palestinians, that's now led to almost 20,000 Palestinians being killed, it has to be the United States. But then when you look at statements issued by either Netanyahu's office or television um, sound bites of him, He's categorical. He's absolutely emphatic that the Israelis are out to get Hamas. They will not stop until they get the last Hamas operative 
in the Palestinian territories and the Gaza Strip. So um, it's debatable, really, even if the U.S. comes out and, and, and is stronger against Israel, whether that will really stop Israel from going after Hamas in the way it's currently doing. What is your expectation then in terms of world opinion where it will stand if this becomes a protracted conflict? And as you say, uh, Netanyahu has no intentions of backing down. We know where the UN General Assembly sits on this. We're waiting for the UN Security Council. It seems like the chips are being stacked against Israel on this, that they may not have opinion on their side for much longer. Oh, I mean, I think uh, support for Israel um, is really weakening and there would have been a lot of support for Israel after October 7th and the horrendous savage atrocities committed by Hamas against the Israeli people. But when you now look at what's happening to the Palestinians, it is absolutely catastrophic. I mean, you have major international humanitarian organizations, including UN organizations, warning of horrendous uh, situations in Gaza that people are go- we are going to see people die of starvation, of lack of water, of um, lack of facilities. There are thousands of people sharing very limited toilet facilities in the southern part of the Gaza Strip where many of the Palestinians from the northern part of Gaza fled to. Um, and we are going to watch ever more harrowing pictures and, and footage of people in in very terrible humanitarian situations in Gaza. And that is going to turn the majority of the world Mm. against Israel if it continues its current Israeli military uh, campaign as it's doing at the moment. Do you think there's a degree of hypocrisy on the part of the United States when we hear the administration uh, castigating Vladimir Putin for some of the atrocities which have been uh, conducted in the Ukrainian war, but yet they tend to sit on their hands when it comes to being more vocal around what is happening in Gaza. Oh, of course. Uh, and, and this has emerged uh, particularly strongly, I suppose, over the last week or two. The varied position that the US takes, it's not an impartial broker in this. It seems to, yes, take a very strong line accusing Russia of engaging in war crimes in Ukraine, while at the same time, it has taken a very different stance in terms of what Israel is doing at the moment in Gaza and the killings of Palestinian civilians and the killings of Palestinian children. And actually on Monday, Alan, the US-based Human Rights Watch accused Israel of the war crime of deliberately starving Gaza's population of 2.3 million. It says that they are blocking the delivery of water, food and fuel, and that's a method of warfare described as a war crime. And this is a US-based human rights uh, organization saying that. So I'm finding it difficult to see how the US can continue to so strongly support Israel if we start to see an ever increasingly awful, harrowing, dreadful situation in the Gaza Strip at some stage, you would think it's going to have to say, no, we really have to step back from here. Now, on the other hand, what the US will say as well is that Hamas continue to fire rockets into Israel every day. And this was one of the issues why Germany uh, was very slow to call for um, a, a more sustainable ceasefire. They're mm. now talking about, you know, something lighter because they're saying Israel has a right to defend itself and Hamas keeps firing rockets over into Israel. 
So that's why it's a little bit more nuanced as well in terms of what Hamas is doing as well. Is there a fear, and there are commentators who are actually quite surprised that this has not expanded into Lebanon, particularly southern Lebanon. We, we've seen a number of incursions there. We've seen bombing by Hezbollah and the Israelis in southern Lebanon. Is there a fear that we could see an escalation heading into Lebanon in the in the coming weeks and months? Oh, yes, there's absolutely that potential for it to flare up. And in the West Bank itself, um, I, I think some something like a few hundred Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank the other side of the Palestinian territories since this started. So, and well, we know now, of course, as well, there are now attacks on ships in uh, in the Red Sea by Houthi rebels who are backed by Iran. So, absolutely, there is the potential for all of that to flare up outside of the territories themselves. And I think if the situation in Gaza gets ever more dire, if we see people dying of food shortages and dirty water and and diseases in Gaza, then, you know, it's hard to see the neighbouring areas, neighbouring countries, neighbouring regions just standing by. I would suspect this is going to potentially fuel a a wider conflict Mm. as more and more people get outraged at the situation. We know what Israel's endgame is, if we were to believe Netanyahu, and that is the annihilation of Hamas. Whether that can happen, I don't know, because Hamas is really an ideology. So what will be post-Hamas, nobody knows. But in terms of negotiation, because ultimately this war will end and we'll have to negotiate what has what is going to happen to Gaza. What's your own view on what should or what can happen once this conflict is over? Because there's no appetite from anybody to allow Israel to occupy Gaza. No, but if you look at what's going on at the moment, you'd have to suspect that that is what Israel wants to do. It's it's very much in Gaza territory in a way it hasn't been for a long time. And one has to be suspect that maybe what Israel wants to do is, is have a very significant military presence in the Gaza Strip to, to really control any Hamas operations. And you're absolutely right. The, the ultimate solution here is a political solution, two-state solution, where the Palestinians and the Israelis can live in peace side by side. But this was all supposed to have been brokered by the Oslo Mm. peace talks way back in the 90s. And here we are, and the situation has got ever worse. And increasingly, and I've reported on this in the West Bank myself in in, in years past, where you have settlers, uh, some born in Israel, many born outside of Israel, Jewish settlers, going into occupied territories that belong to the Palestinians in in the West Bank. It's very hard to see any political solution being brokered at the moment. And you'd have to ask, how on earth are these people going to be able to live side by side after the atrocities being committed on both sides? I mean, how on earth are they going to be able to talk to one another, work with one another, do business with one another? It seems like we're far away from any political solution right now. I mean, the main aim is to stop the killings from both sides and on both sides. And then 
Gaza will have to be rebuilt. I mean, look at the destruction of Gaza. It's absolutely horrendous. Mm-hmm. Just, just on that, uh, Karen, I'm just running out of time here. We, we mentioned the two-state solution and everybody is pointing to that to being a realistic prospect in order to try and resolve this once and for all. The two-state solution has been going around forever. Privately in the United Nations, they think it is a joke that it can't happen. So we're really on a hook here in terms of knowing what the final outcome is going to be in terms of a political uh, settlement. It is very difficult. And when you look at the geographical terrain, the Gaza Strip is on one side of the Palestinian territories. The West Bank is in the other. And there's a, a, a big piece of Israel in between. So even from physically, geographically, from that perspective, you know, there would have to be some bridge between the two. But that has always been an issue about how you can have uh, sort of divided land areas as as one country representing the Palestinians. But then what's the alternative? Um, what is the alternative to um, the Palestinians wanting their own country, their homeland, their capital, their part of Jerusalem, to the Israelis also wanting it? I mean, it, alternatives aren't really there. I, I, they're... They're too difficult to comprehend. Well, well, we're seeing the alternative of what's happening now. And if this is just the beginning of it, it could potentially get a lot worse. Well, of course. And what's got, you know, are all of the or the majority of the people of Gaza, are they supposed to be pushed out into Israel? Do they then, you know, go into refugee camps in order to at least be away from uh, military onslaught? And then what happens there? It's extremely difficult. I mean, the, the, first of all, the, the, the violence has to stop. The places have to be rebuilt. And then further down, much further down the road, you're talking about potentially bringing the main key political players into uh, a room where a diplomatic political solution can be found. But it's very hard to see that happening with the current Hamas structure, with the erosion of the authority of the Palestinian Authority, who are supposed to be the main political representation of the Palestinian people, and then the Netanyahu government. I think we'll have to see political changes in all of those structures before any political solution can be found. But that's much further down the road. Okay, we leave it there. Karen Coleman, editor of EU News Radio, joining us this morning. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. Now, welcome back. Before I leave you, I just want to go back to um, one of the items we're covering with Father Iggy O'Donovan, Augustinian priest and formerly of this parish. He's based now in Tip. We were talking about, I suppose, what has been perceived as a significant advance for LGBT people in the Roman Catholic Church, where Pope Francis allowed priests to be blessed uh, to bless same-sex couples with a number of caveats. And that's what we were talking uh, with Iggy about before we lost him on the line. Uh, welcome back, Iggy. Let's just pick it up where we left it off. And I was putting it to you that um, we understand that, that Pope Francis is not an island, that he has a lot of hoops to go through before he can push through reforms in the Catholic Church. Do you imagine he wanted to go further, but he was constrained by the powers that be surrounding him from going the extra mile on this? difficult to say, like uh, I know that Francis in his personal life would be actually quite traditional, but he does, ha- he does have a broad vision, all right, and I know that he, he, if you like, I know he wants to reform, but my goodness, he is surrounded by, there was a very, very determined group of right-wing traditional conservatives who are deeply entrenched, and uh, if anybody follows some of the right-wing American websites, the Catholic websites, my God, 
they speak of Francis in a way that Ian Paisley would not have done. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's uh, so that he's fighting a very difficult battle and has enemies on the inside. But I do think that the fact that he made the move at all and the fact that he as the Pope made it, it is a significant move. Though I think, as I said before, we were interrupted earlier on, that uh, I don't know how much real practical difference it's going to make on the ground now because the foot soldiers, by and large, have made up their own minds on most of these things. And these half-concessions, unwillingly granted, grudgingly, at the end of the day, have probably come too little, Mm. too late, to make any real difference. The hypocrisy is almost breathtaking when you consider what happened at the weekend, the big corruption trial uh, in the Vatican and the subsequent uh, jail sentences received by six individuals who probably won't do jail time. Half of me thinks that this was just put out there as a smokescreen to try and suppress that particular story. There is hypocrisy there. Yes, I, I think it was the first time, in, certainly in modern history, that a, a cardinal was ever yeah. was ever uh, jailed. But as you say, he hasn't served the day yet, and I doubt he and ever probably will never it. will. And probably never will. He, he he is appealing, and that's his right, so we'll grant him that. But uh, I, but as but to, to get back to, to the other point, re, I seriously believe that at the coalface, on the ground, it's making relatively very little difference. There would be a small number of Catholics, I think, that would, would love if they felt that they could, they could enter a full relief, full married relationship uh, recognised by the church in their situation. But I don't think that is going to happen. The, what has what's been done is a small concession, but as I say, I don't know if it's relevant any longer because people are really making up their own minds and doing their own thing and probably is just as well. That's, that's really what I have to say on it. When you think about where the Catholic Church needs to be and at what it went through over the past couple of decades, we really haven't made a whole lot of progress in terms of reformation, have we? Oh, no. And in fact, the, the, the past couple of decades, particularly with the, the abuse scandals and so forth, the enormous damage that has been done, in fact, I would, ha- I would actually argue, uh, Alan, that it has done more damage to the Church in this country, certainly, than the Reformation, the break-up in the t- at the time of the Reformation and the penal laws. It didn't do as much damage. So uh, it's been a, a very difficult time to be at the coalface. I can sp- say that from experience. And uh, some of us at the coalface, our problem was not only were we facing... Uh, if you like, the left-wing people at one side of us who were criticising us, but we were even greater danger from those inside the camp on the right wing. <laughs> so that we were being hit by traffic from both sides. Those of us, those of us who really felt that Catholicism could be reconciled mm. to modernity. There was a time for 30 years I believed that. I'm not so sure anymore. And when you look at the number of uh, individuals being ordained in this country, it has just gone through the floor. There is nobody going there to be ordained into the priesthood, into the Catholic Church. And I want to ask you, uh, as somebody on the front line, where does the younger uh, individual come when it comes to attending uh, services on a Sunday or on a regular basis? Are they turning up? In great majority, they are not turning up. And this has been true for decades, by the way, but it's more pronounced now. And uh, in fact, I think we are at the point now, what was a stage where you looked out, you, you might see the teenagers, par- parents and so forth. But now I think it's gone to the grandparents. There's actually two generations now who are not turning up, unless I'm missing something. But, but they're certainly not turning up to me. 
And, uh, and I presume it's because the Catholic Church is not seen to be relevant when it comes to younger people in terms of what their yes. needs and outlook, uh, out- I have outlook just, is. I, yes, and interesting for me now, I've just completed this year, uh, back in June, uh, I had a Leave Insert History class down in Tipperary. And in the two years that I was teaching that modern history, nobody, none of the students, 60, 18, 17, 18 year olds, criticized the church or praised it. In fact, what I noticed that it didn't come up at all. Good, bad, or indifferent. Like, you, you might, some people would say, how do you face those classes? Well, do they not go for you? I said, they don't. I only wish they did. They, they, they simply don't bring up anything to do. We did our history. We did all of that mm. stuff, Collins and Dev and all the rest. But none of them. Uh, it just didn't, it, not that they were against it. It just didn't arise. Any more, for example, I'm sure cricket is a lovely game, but I can't tell you anything about it. I'm simply not involved in it. Before I let you go, many of before I let you go, I just want to ask you and put this to you, that perhaps the Catholic Church missed a real opportunity to reimagine and reinvent itself post what was uh, uncovered in relation to the abuse scandals and other scandals, that that opportunity has been missed and it's now, been, it's now gone. And that was a generational opportunity that they missed. It could well be, but I think, Alan, more correctly, I believe that what the abuse and the scandals did was they gave a nudge and pushed the thing on a bit further. I think the process, even since the 1960s, certainly since the 70s, the process was already well in train. And I'm not so sure that the scandals, well, they did give it, they pushed, they did create, they did cause problems, they did push it on. But the trend was already well there. The decline was on. And let's face it, we're... (laughs) I hope, look, I'm wishing everybody well for Christmas, but when I say, look, as far as the majority in society are concerned, certainly Western society, God is dead and he's not missed. Okay, we'll leave it there. (laughs) But having said that, I'm looking forward to a good Christmas and hope all the Boinsiders do too, Louth and me. Iggy, we leave it there. Father Iggy uh, O'Donovan, Augustinian priest, joining us um, in Tipperary this morning. That's more or less where we leave it uh, for this morning. A couple of comments I want to get through before we uh, wrap it up. This is in relation to communication around uh, refugees in this country on the part of the government. Tony says it's not rocket science when it comes to the government communicating with the public. All they have to do is tell them the truth and give them the full facts. People respond better to change when they are aware of the reason for and the thinking behind said changes. Government have been giving the public half the information and it's coming back to bite them in the backside. Integration of migrants, Mary says, how government are dealing with the integration of migrants is all wrong and overly complicated. What they uh, don't, why don't they just give the management of the integration process over to the organisations and groups who are working closely with the migrants and have a better understanding of what they need and what they come here for. Government seem to be making a mess of it and stirring up confusion publicly. They should leave it to the people who know what they are doing. Davy agrees with other commentators who say the government are mismanaging the communications on the migrant issue. They've put their foot in it time and time again and it's time for them to hand it over to people who know what they're doing. We cannot allow this culture of misinformation to continue for much longer. That's it. We're back with you same time tomorrow on the programme. Until then, for me, Alan Cantwell, good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.